Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Vice and Easy. This week, we're breaking down season one, episode nine, Glades. The plot synopsis of this episode? Crockett and Tubbs have to recover a witness in a major drug dealer's trial who has ran off to the Everglades and must testify in 48 hours. And the opening of this episode is a little different than what we're used to. We're not getting the beautiful, glamorous, um, you know, poolside, infinity pool villas that we usually see. Uh, It doesn't even look like Miami. It kind of looks like a little bit run down, looks like more of like an East Coast city. So I don't really know what kind of area of town I would call this. It's not really red light district, but it is where you find back in the day porn theaters, strip clubs, video stores, that kind of stuff. For me growing up in Toronto, that would be Young Street and a little bit of bluer um, is kind of where you'd get that. So I don't know what it was in your hometown, but basically it's kind of like the seedier part of town, not really a part of town that you want to stumble into. Um, And I actually took a cool, when I was trying to take a screenshot, uh, both of the frames had overlapped. So you kind of get to see like the two different signs superimposed onto each other. So that's on the gallery at viceandeasypodcast.com. Yeah. And then um, I took another gif of like this hustler with a woman and then fighting this other guy, but you don't know which one he's fighting. I don't know who he's mad at. So <laughs> just, you know, kind of, I guess this montage is just kind of supposed to set the scene that we're not in the glamorous South Beach part of Miami that we're used to. And the song playing in the background is We've Got to Get Out of This Place by The Animals, which I always associate with Vietnam. Um, I don't know what movie or television show it's from where they play that when they're in Vietnam. I think it's Full Metal Jacket. I can't remember. Um, But that's what I associate it with. When the sun refused to shine People tell me they're I keep getting in trouble with YouTube for having music seconds that are obviously less than 15, but more than five. So I do apologize. I think I might just try to make a fun playlist for you guys. There already is a really good one on Spotify called Miami Vice colon all seasons. Um, That's pretty inclusive. So I don't really know if I can touch that. Maybe I can like theme them out. I could have like Miami Vice soundtrack party, Miami Vice soundtrack for the ladies, Miami Vice soundtrack, chill, you know, kind of like spit it by genre. And so as we open up, Crockett and Tubbs are watching a witness. The witnesses was watching Deputy Dog. Again, this was before cell phones. So they're basically trapped in a room. Crockett's reading the newspaper. This guy is watching cartoons. And then Tubbs is really feeling himself. So he has his eye on the beautiful court reporter that he's going to see later. And he wants to ask her out on a date. And starting to think about this, he gets so excited, he starts to sing. Today I'll be dancing. Now, this isn't quite Vice T, otherwise I'd save this for the end. But it is a shame that Philip Michael Thomas's music career didn't pan out because he does have a lovely voice. It was just, unfortunately, the material that wasn't high quality. But as you can see, the guy can sing. Now, his little sing session gets interrupted by a knock on the door. And they start freaking out because they're not expecting anybody until Zito and Switek in another hour and they're obviously hiding this guy so it's not really like they're expecting visitors or that visitors are welcome so they open (laughs) they have their guns cocked and ready to load and open the door and i took a great gif of crockett with his gun underneath (laughs) switek's chin (laughs) you know i think they should have announced himself when they knocked at the door you know obviously maybe they couldn't give their real names because you don't want to blow your cover but you could have you know you could have had a code word or something that would have made yourself a little bit more familiar 
when you're arriving an hour early. So Zito and Switek, they're a little bit early. Basically, they're switching posts. So Zito and Switek are going to watch over the witness. They have some food. They have a piece of mail for the witness. And again, that's kind of a red flag. If you're hiding out and you have 48 hours to find a trial and you're getting mail. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> I thought that too. And I was like, wait, that th- that'd be the last thing I'd want to see is to have a letter addressed to me while I'm hiding out. So they give him this letter. Obviously, this guy reading it is a little bit distraught. Tubbs notices. You all right? 206 gum, 100 pounds Come on, Tubbs. of And so that door was obviously the door slamming as they leave to go to court. Um, Also, I was listening to that commercial, 63 Donuts. I want to know more about what that's about. Um, And they also mention Albert uh, Schweitzer. And I've heard this name before on The Simpsons in the Stonecutters episode. Basically, when Homer starts to get a little bit comfortable with his position of power, Mo says something like, he's gone nuts with power like that Albert Schweitzer guy. And when I looked up Albert Schweitzer, he was actually a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Seems like a very good guy all around, theology student, PhD. Um, So I think it was like a conflation of Adolf Hitler and Albert Schweitzer. Because I was like, because they mentioned something about like being very altruistic, like Albert Schweitzer. And I was like, oh, like that was a joke in The Simpsons. So I was was like, wait, this guy actually does sound very altruistic. Like he was just started this hospital in Africa um, by Equatorial Guinea and was raising all this money and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I was like, oh, okay. So joke went completely over my head. Uh, So now we're in court. The court reporter is very beautiful, but you will notice. So court reporting is actually a very, very, very difficult and strenuous program to complete. Um, I believe you need like a 95% grade point average to pass and to graduate. So basically what court reporters do is they enter everything in but they don't enter in the vowels. Please correct me. I This is, you know, just half-assed research and people that I know that have studied it. But this was, you know, bar conversations five years ago. So they hit multiple keys at the same time. Because basically what you're doing is you're kind of making an encrypted letter to yourself, but people, other people can be able to read it with their trained to read it. So basically you're just entering in consonants and you have to enter, you have to know. So if someone says the word bench, you have to enter B-N-C-H. And so you kind of have to use your fingers and hit all those keys at the same time because you want to have one stroke per word. So as you can see, the actress who's playing court reporter is not using that the same way she's kind of using as a typewriter and you can see the camera moves and puts a guy's head in the shot blocking it so i thought that was interesting i was like oh that's a little that's a little blunder boy i really hope somebody got fired for that blunder so now back to the process so tubbs is testifying on the stand and the person he's testifying against is my new favorite guest star this episode, Enrique Ruiz. He has zero words of dialogue the entire episode, but he is the greatest guest court actor on Miami Vice so far that I can remember just from his expressions and his outfits alone. <laughs> Please go to the gallery. I think I took about like three or four different pictures and gifts of him. This I'm obsessed with this guy. I could not find out who he is. I tried looking at IMDb. I tried reverse Google image searching. I cannot figure out who this actor is, but I would like to personally give him an Emmy. But to get back to my point, here's Tubbs on the stand. I see. So that when Joey Bramlett, a small time dealer, mentioned Enrique Ruiz, what was uh, your state of mind? He was just blowing smoke, trying to cop a plea. 
on an important dope supplier. And when Bramlett told you that he'd seen Ruiz kill a cop in the Everglades, <coughs> did you still think he was just blowing smoke? No, sir. Because of the details of the shooting, the kneeling, the shots in the back of the head, I took it very seriously. It even checked out with the coroner's report. So this Joy Bramlin is obviously going to be a very important part because he's going to be basically the key witness of this trial against Enrique Ruiz. So Crockton Tubbs, after the deposition, are telling the lawyers that their witness will put their client away for a long time. Also, Tubbs finally tries to shoot his shot with the court reporter. And this is how it goes. TGIF, huh? F-O-R-G-E-T-I-T. So after the deposition, we go back to the CD motel room where Zito and Switek are babysitting or protecting. Um, so Zito and Switek are kind of getting into it with this soap opera that they're watching, kind of getting a little bit heated. Again, this was like back in the day. You didn't really have any other distractions except for a book or television. <laughs> You know, like you are sequestered. There's nothing else you can really do. Um, so the witness starts getting like a little bit shifty. Uh, so Zwitek goes to take a pee and Zito like goes to go make himself a sandwich. And it's like the saddest sandwich setup too. They basically just have like two pieces of bread, mustard and cold cuts. Like there's no cheese, there's no vegetables. And so the witness bails and walks out. And naturally at the precinct, Castillo is not happy about it. Four and a half months of work down the drain. We were protecting him, Lieutenant. Who'd have thought I'd take a flyer? Uh, let me get this straight now. You let this guy just walk out. He didn't tie you up. He didn't pull a gun. Shut up, Crockett. <laughs> Look, I had to take a whiz, okay? Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Enough. And Castillo's still wondering why this guy would bail. It was Bramlett's idea to testify. That's right. Why this? And when we were leaving this morning, I noticed he reacted strange to something that was in his mail, like it freaked him. Ricardo, what are you talking about? Did he say anything to you guys? Not a peep. He just sat there staring out the window. And so they mentioned that they have 48 hours to fix this because if Bramlett doesn't testify, Ruiz walks free. He's basically the star witness. Uh, so this is very, very, very important for this case. So Castillo kind of gives out ideas like where to find him. So basically he tells Crockett and Tubbs to go to the last place that he was at. So they go to... <laughs> They go to the place they found him, which is this foxy boxy ring. Okay, I don't want to say like not arena, but basically this foxy foxy boxing venue. Let's let's give it some credence. Foxy boxing venue. Um, it's kind of like very like fun decorated. There's neon lights and kind of paintings on the wall. The girls obviously look great, and they go in to talk to this guy Harry who runs it. Please go check out Harry's outfit. It's actually it's very 80s at the time. Like it's not something I don't think many of you would wear now but if you do i very much appreciate and encourage it it's not bright neon green but it's like a very vivid green almost lime like a dark lime green um with kind of like a boxy structural zigzag pattern in black on the lapels it's very interesting look at the gallery i was very intrigued by this the song playing in the background is i send a message by in excess and so they get to the club they're walking through this is something I'm going to bring up a few times. I think this is just me rewatching as an older woman. Tub, oh no, sorry, Crockett seems to know a lot of women. 
And I understand that he's doing a lot of undercover, you know, so he's playing a character. But for someone who is recently separated from his wife, I'm just, the timeline, you know, I'm just like, how friendly was he with these women? And uh, the more I sympathize with Caroline. (laughs) I don't think that Crockett is a cheater. I think maybe he's just a big flirt or maybe this is just his you know, Sonny Bates, Sonny Burnett persona, but I'm like, I don't know, if I were Caroline sitting at home, I'd be a little, be side-eyeing all of his lady friends. But basically, I digress. They're there to meet with Harry. Hey, sweetheart, how are you? Harry, how you doing, old pal? Okay. What happened to your mud wrestlers? Oh, it's too messy, used to splash all over the lunch patrons. Foxy Boxing's what's in now. So it's good to see you two fellows again, just in the neighborhood. <laughs> Get out of here, Harry. Nobody's ever just in this neighborhood. <laughs> I like that. Nobody's ever just in this neighborhood. And like, that is true. Yeah. Like these parts of town, you're never just like, but it take a leisurely stroll. Like you're, you're there, you know what you're there for. So basically he does have information. Bramland came by, uh, pilfered through his cigar box, helped himself to a few hundreds and booked it. They suspect he's back in the Everglades where he's from. So now it's time to get out of town. So this song, Girls With Guns by Tommy Shaw, is playing as they're driving. It's like a three minute scene. It's actually great. Like they got like really good aerial footage of the glades and the Ferrari with the, the fishing rods in the back. It's very hilarious because like that's basically like all you think they brought with them. Like maybe a tackle box, maybe like a life jacket, maybe, you know, something. But they're just basically there in like fishing vests, fishing rods. Like they're there to do business. And I just love that there's no other car they could borrow to maybe be a little bit more under the radar. Like, you know, I mean, does Tubbs drives because he mentioned that he got lost on the Dan Schuler Expressway. So like, what does Tubbs drive? Why doesn't Tubbs drive? Can't he get his gas reimbursed? And also this was the 80s. Like gas was what, like 40 cents and you bought a pack of cigarettes for a dollar? Like, <laughs> oh my God, imagine taking road trips in the 80s, how cheap they would be. Oh, one day. So when they finally make it back to Okeechobee. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I tried to pronounce it the same way they were pronouncing on the show because the way it's spelled is not like that at all. Um, so I was kind of looking at this. It looks like it's a little bit northwest of Miami. There's like a big lake in the middle. Um, so I think he's basically going back. He, he's from Okeechobee Springs. So I hope I maybe that's a different part of the Everglades. Um, basically in Central Florida, Alligator Alley, you know, same thing. It is fun. I've driven on Alligator Alley. It's there's not really a lot to see because there's no hills, <laughs> just just swamp, just swamp. And so when we get there, Crockett and Tubbs are very quick to notice that this fishing town is not just a regular fishing town. You've got lots of fancy foreign cars, so obviously they could tell something's going on. And so uh, Tubbs asked Crockett because Crockett has a little bit more intel as to what's really going on with this town. Yeah, fishing must be real good this season. Yeah, fishman helps on an offload. He can make more tonight than he couldn't make in two or three years of crabbing a guiding. Okay, that was the wrong clip, but <laughs> I'm going to keep it. Why not? But here's them talking about what happened when some other agents came to do a little bit of work. This town is very hot. They never sent nobody in here before. The DEA's been in here twice undercover. How'd they do? Don't know. They never came back. 
Also, can we just appreciate that to fit in, Crockett has just gone right southern, extra southern-fied his accent even more. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. It gets better. So basically, they go to kind of like this tackle shop. I want to say it's like a general store because there's like a little picnic area outside where guys are drinking beer. And I recognize this gentleman. The gentleman they're talking to is Vukovic from To Live and Die in LA, aka John Pankow. And I have some vice tea about the Michael Mann how Michael Mann felt about To Live and Die in L.A. So stay tuned for Vice Tea. I got some cold 1985 tea on that one. <laughs> uh, so basically, Sonny keeps trying to fit in, and um, I can't. I was hoping maybe we could uh, fish some lily pads. I like using a flipping stick, you know, go after them big boys. I'm sorry. Okay. I had to I I was trying to like let's just wait out and see when I stop laughing and I I couldn't. I'm sorry. I had to like take a break. I'm crying. I Like, I also have an accent, but like, oh my god, I don't. <laughs> One no sticks in a lily pad. Oh my god. <sighs> don't frogs rest on lily pads? So, is he trying to use frogs as bait and get big fish to come eat the frogs and then catch them? So, basically, oh my god, okay. The group of locals are grilling them, you know, like. What do you want to do? Basically, they say they're just coming down to fish and they want to meet with the guy that guided them last time. His name was um, Joey Brumlett, a.k.a. The Witness. So they're basically trying to, you know, find out where he's hiding. And the two guys, it's Billy Joe and whoever John Panka. I forgot what his name is. I'm sorry. It'll come to me. Uh, Basically, you know, they're 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 the ones kind of grilling him. They basically say that they, you know, they prefer American cars when they're also driving fancy imported cars. They're obviously doing something shady and nefarious down here. I don't think the fishing is that good. So basically, they offer to take them into the Everglades and try to find Joey Bremlett. Surprise, surprise! As they drive through the Everglades, they get booed out of the car and. Speaking of this accent. What'd that dude Clyde Eastman say in that movie, Floyd? <laughs> Go ahead. Ruin my day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's go ahead, make my day. <laughs> but so basically, surprise, surprise, they're still suspicious of them. They feel like they're cops. They're suspicious of them. Basically, they beat them up, leave them in the Everglades all by themselves, no way to get home. So basically, Crockett and Tubbs have to use their outdoorsy skills and their Boy Scout training, which I think only Crockett has. Growing up in the city, like I did Girl Guides growing up and I hated it, but um, that's more for just, you know, someone I very much did not like on my same troop. But 
like you kind of don't really like I learned how to tie knots and I learned some stuff but like you don't really do the outdoorsy stuff until you go camping and then like I don't really remember learning a lot of survival tactics like I think I knew how to start a fire and I think I knew what leaves and berries not to eat that only basically apply to Ontario so if I were lost in the desert I'd be screwed so I don't know but again I only did it for like one year so I think if you do it for multiple years and you go on all these trips and you get your different badges and fishing and gutting and hooking and all that then you actually have a little bit more of a survivalist advantage than I do so me and Tubbs being from the city we're we're not made out for this so Crockett is basically trying to figure out due to the location of the sun and the moss on the trees where they are and how to get back to the road. Is the road inland? Is the road by the coast? Who knows? But they seem to be figuring out this for a while. Looks like a couple hours, it seems, until Crockett makes a discovery. Wait a minute. If moss grows on the north side of the tree, then what the hell is the sun doing in the wrong spot? sun is in the wrong spot. Um, what are those constants is the sun. The sun is never in the wrong spot. So hence, um, like in Yellow Jackets, which is the show about the um, girls soccer team strained in the wilderness, they kind of always refer to trigonometry. And I was like, now it kind of dawns on me because you need to know like what angle the sun is hitting what and how. To, uh, again, I'm not, I, I would not, as a vegetarian and as a city girl, two days max. I would probably eat first because I'm tall and somewhat muscular. So therefore I would provide a lot of nutrients to my friends or to my fellow survivors. So I think that's basically would be my fate if I were left in the wild. <laughs> just like, look, just, just eat me at this point. I don't, I don't want to survive. So they run into not a friendly looking snake that is camouflaged into the tree. And then they meet some unfriendly hunters who, uh, take them in at gunpoint and then they are on an airboat with a woman not really speaking not really telling them where they're going and again the scene is like two minutes it is beautiful kind of like riding through the swamp I keep wanting to call it a bayou I'm like no 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 we're in Florida not Louisiana swamp I just want to give it like a nicer term than swamp because they are very beautiful and it is very important to the ecosystem so I just kind of feel like the word swamp is like a little degrading but again, this is, I don't know, if you're from Florida and I guess we can just call it the Everglades. That's what it is. They're in the Everglades. Let's just call it the Everglades. So we get a beautiful view of the Everglades. I took a couple pictures. Uh, so finally she speaks. And so she says that her name is Cassie. She doesn't have the same yokel accent. Sorry, I don't want to say the word yokel, but that's exactly what these accents are reminding me of. Cletus the slack jawed yokel from The Simpsons. And they basically say they're at a cabin and... Well, she'll kind of explain when he gets there. So when they finally get to this cabin, Joey pops up and explains that he ran away because Ruiz kidnapped his daughter, tried to kidnap his wife as well, and that he would kill her. That's right, that he would kill him. If he and showed up Tubbs kind of presses back and is like, well, what if you what if you show up and you don't say anything? Like you're on the stand, but you don't say anything. And he said, no, he was, that he assumed that Ruiz was going to kill her either way. So we wanted to come back and helper and basically the reason they kidnapped Crockett and Tubbs from the Glades I don't even know how they found them in the Everglades like geez they well to be fair so there was a man that I took a picture of who was playing the fiddle at that little general store slash department store slash tackle shop slash DMV <laughs> all in one of those small towns 
Um, so he was there was an older gentleman playing the fiddle, and we see him later in this cabin. His name is Clem, or as they affectionately call him, is Pops. So I'm sure he was kind of the intel, and he kind of either could follow the guys, take him into the Everglades, or kind of knew about where they were going to capture, where they were going to, you know, kick them out and let them let them starve. So, in short, they brought them there because they want their help, and that even though basically everybody in the town is in on this, everybody in the town is doing dirty work. And that makes a lot more sense why this guy is the witness. So basically, as I mentioned in another episode, that RICO, which stands for racketeering and something else, sorry. (laughs) Something about organized crime and racketeering. But basically on RICO charges, the law enforcement has the right to freeze and all your assets. So a lot of times if you are indicted in kind of an organized crime ring, if you're not the top dog, you still might not have money to pay for a good defense lawyer. So that's how they're able to get a lot of these guys to talk is because basically they're pushed into a corner. They have no other they have no other avenue and basically they have to testify against the big dogs. So Joey Bramlett has like Castillo said offered to testify. It was his idea. So I think it was his idea to testify in order to wipe away any other charges or to kind of, you know, put them in witness relocation programs, so forth, kind of to get either. We don't know this. I'm just assuming. I'm just widely, wildly assuming. Uh, So Crockett is not really jazzed the idea of helping them because, you know, they're all crooks. But, you know, there's a little girl at stake here. She's in this house with about 20, again, this is their word, not mine, 20 Colombians on the perimeter. So they only have six people. <laughs> Let's do that math. Won't be submitted tomorrow night, though. Hey, Pops. You were the fiddle at the bar. Oh, heard the boy, Billy Joe. It's gonna be a drop tomorrow night. At least half of them Colombians gonna be real busy. Crack it. Man, even with an experienced team, maybe with this bunch. <laughs> so the bunch that he's referring to is not just family. So basically, Joey says that the guys that are working with them, trying to get their daughter back, have I, have been impacted by this as well. Like either Ruiz has hurt or killed one of their family members. I think he says lost a loved one. So you know they're, they're taking this all personally and they're trying to save this little girl. So it's actually for for a good thing. All right, so I'm going to jump back to the plan because I feel like I'm not explaining it well. So basically, they want to wait for the shipment to come because the house won't be as heavily guarded. So let's say there's 20 people watching the house. If the shipment comes in, you know, you'll need guys to type the seaplane, to take things out, to organize, manual labor, pick stuff up, put it away. So let's say that 10 people will remain at the house guarding the house and 10 people will remain or will go to the dock or get the shipment in. So... That's kind of the idea is that it's a lot easier to take on a crew of 10 with six people than a crew of 20. And if they're already, if they're not, if they're picking up this shipment, they might not have their guns on them. They're obviously not going to be loaded and ready to attack. So, you know, they're trying to get them when they're already distracted. So it's actually a good idea. Uh, so they are trying to kind of like plan this map out on a dollhouse, which is very funny. It's very, it's actually very cute. I think this is very cute. So Clem or Pops or Fiddle Player, 
he kind of seems to be the spy. So basically, he kind of goes back to the general store. He pops the hood, tinkering this truck, picks up Billy Joe, which is one of the guys, not the guy from To Live and Die in LA, the other guy that left Crock and Tubbs in the woods. And kind of talks to him about the shipment coming in, gets a little bit more details, drops him off, and then radios back into the house with the details. Um, and then, oh, this is actually very cute. <laughs> this is a very cute scene. Well, I think it's okay, not cute cute, but it's um, very wholesome where Clem is showing off this gun and he gives a little bit of a backstory. That's my daddy's gator getter. Smooth boy, mud and loader. Now that bad boy knock a tree down. It get that tension. Y'all need a real marksman for this job. <laughs> you want him? Well, you're the one that needs the marksman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pops, you're with me. Oh, that's very sweet. I like that. Him and Crockett are gonna, you know, he's gonna basically have Crockett's back. I think that's very sweet. So, cutscene. It's nighttime, and this is where they're kind of starting their intel and their, I guess, their reconnaissance. So, Crockett gets his way up to the roof and lies down. I took a picture of this and put an arrow because like you can barely see him. And then as the sun rises, Crockett is still there. So I was like, wait, was he just lying on this rooftop for how many hours was this? Was this three hours? Was this four hours? Like it seems to be pitch black. Like it doesn't seem to be like twilight, you know, or whereas there's, there's kind of that transition to a sunrise. Like it seems like it's dark, dark when he gets there. So I was like, where does, my my note is, where did he pee? Did he just pee himself? Did he, <laughs> did he just stand up on the roof and turn around? Like, I don't know. I know he's trying to keep a low profile. That's why he's on his stomach. So that, that things I think about. Uh, so the seaplane comes in. It's actually a beautiful seaplane. My boyfriend's doing flying lessons. So whenever he sees these really fancy seaplanes, he's like, wow, that'd be so cool. I'm like, no, seaplanes are super cool. I've only been, I think I went to one once. It might have been Tomogamy. So Tomogamy is kind of like northern Ontario. Uh, lots of beautiful fishing. There was a very large Finnish uh, population migration because, you know, very tall tree, trees, very green, lots of fishing. So I think that's where I went because you want to be able to look over like lots of little lakes. And I think I went on a little seaplane, like a little tour guide. So, but these look like these, these are big guys. These are probably ones that are crossing borders, not ones that are just, you know, taking one person up to see some lakes and some trees. Like this looks like the real deal. And I'm just going to take a little break right here after that thrilling description of Northern Ontario tourism. See you in a bit. And we are back. So as I mentioned, the half the crew is out receiving the shipment from the seaplane while the rest of the guys are guarding the house. And this is where Tubbs and his crew go, start shooting, picking them off one by one. This is where it gets a little bit country. And I kind of had a little bit fun with the pictures that you can see on the gallery at viceandeasypodcast.com. <laughs> one guy is stationed behind an outdoor, outdoor washer-dryer combo. The guys in the house kick down the refrigerator that is obviously outside the house kind of use that uh, to guard the doorway and hide behind it. <laughs> and then Lloyd, aka Vukovic, aka John Pankow, tries to run off. Tubbs tackles him, gets him. So Crockett, who again, like I said, was stationed up on the roof, he finds kind of like a trap door, pops down in the house, takes out a few guys. Then he comes face to face with Billy Joel and the little girl, Tammy. And at this point, Billy Joel is basically using her as a human shield. Um kind of taunting 
Crockett that if he takes him out, he's going to take her out as well. And this is their standoff. Maybe you won't even twitch. And with that, Crockett shoots him right in the head. Little girl's obviously stunned and definitely traumatized. Takes the little girl. He's trying to coerce her over, saying, you know, he's a cop, she's safe. Um, I think this would be the time to show your badge. That's just kind of what's going through my head. If I was a little girl that was being held hostage for a couple days by a lot of bad guys and another guy takes out the guy who's taking me hostage, I would just want to make sure that I'm going to the going to the right place. But luckily, she goes with Crockett. Crockett takes her outside. She's so excited to see her mom and dad. It's very sweet, very sweet reunion. However, at this time, so the whole crew outside is congregating, kind of welcoming Timmy back in. A guy pops up from the house who I guess had been hiding. And right when we hear turn around, Clem, aka Pops, aka the fiddle player, aka the guy with the gator killer, shoots him quick with his gator killer, <laughs> gator killer, and he's very proud of himself. As he should be, because, you know, people were kind of making fun that he was going to watch Crockett and he was going to be the marksman. And hey, you know what? He showed up and he did his job. So that was the last guy. And just as quickly as they're reunited, Crockett and Tubbs come to take Joey because they got two hours to get to court. They got to go right back (laughs) on Alligator Alley and get him right back into the Miami-Dade courthouse. So while they're gunning back through Alligator Alley, we cut back to the court scene where the lawyers are pleading with the judge to allow a little bit more time for their witness to take the stand. However, the judge is not too impressed. As we see in this next clip, they've been waiting two hours. Over two hours now. Sufficient time for Mr. Bramblett, who has arrived. We will proceed at this time. Uh, do you have any other witnesses? No, Your Honor. Well, then, Based on these circumstances, I have no choice but to dismiss. The state calls Joey Bramlett to the stand. They just made it. The judge was just about to say, you can kind of hear the word dismiss getting cut, but basically the judge was saying we have to dismiss the charges. So if he hadn't shown up to testify against Enrique Ruiz, that would have been it. He would have walked free. And I must bring attention to this. <laughs> Enrique Ruiz is wearing a kind of like a teal green shirt, obviously unbuttoned. And he is so mad once Joey, Crockett and Tubbs walk in the door. And might I also add, they are filthy. Of course they are. They have just basically shot up 20 people and then sped home down, sped down the alligator alley to get into this courthouse. So happy news. Joey's taking the stand the end. All right, so let's break this down. Now, let's get to our best dress segment. Now, did I find the perfect clip or what, right? Isn't that perfect? I'm going to keep that as long as I can until I can find something better to substitute it. But I was trying to find something funny, like a comedy movie where someone's like, oh, and the best dress goes to, I was like, I was going to do the best actor slash model from Zoolander, but I think David Bowie's fashion, perfect. Obviously, no surprise, my best dressed, (laughs) Enrique Ruiz. I cannot figure out who this guy is. If anybody knows, please, please, please let me know. I am dying to I would like to give this man Emmy I think he did so much acting with just his eyes and his facial expressions alone I am so impressed not only that he was just dressed in the nines the entire time 
And of course, you can see both of his outfits on the Vice and Easy Gallery at viceandeasypodcast.com. And then so my second place winner is going to be Harry. I really liked that green and black blazer with the zigzag design. I thought that was really cool, very much of the time. It's a great color on him, too. Um, Number three, Crockett's mesh shirt has returned. My thoughts are, especially in that Miami humidity, doesn't it smell? I have this mesh shirt, and it's a baggy mesh shirt. It's not like one of those tight 90s, you know, um, I said disco rave shirts. Like it's a, it's a loose fitting one. And I wear it to work. And then I realize why I don't wear it to work or why I shouldn't because I wear natural deodorant. And that mixed with synthetic fabric or fibers, absolutely not. Bad idea all around. So obviously I know that people were not wearing natural deodorant in the 80s, but I just wonder how he smells. Oh, my honorable mention is also the hustler in the Panama hat and the open black shirt fighting with either the woman or the man to either his right or left or both. Who knows? <laughs> now wait for it. The vice tea this week is hot. But first, let's get to Elvis's legal minute. <laughs> so the legal question I had this episode was, can a, ju- can a case of this stature be thrown out if a witness does not take the stand? And the answers differ, but because he's the key witness and because his testimony is inextricably linked to Tubbs's testimony, yes, he can. So if basically all the evidence is depending on a witness's testimony and the witness does not take the stand, it could be thrown out. This is more common in domestic violence cases and sexual assault cases where unfortunately the victim does have to take the stand in a lot of cases. And because of how distraught and how emotionally and harmed they were by this person. It's very difficult to take the stand, not even taking into effect, do they have gang ties? Are they violent? Will they be able to find me once they get out? All these questions that do arise when you're a victim thinking about taking the stand, there's unfortunately all these very upsetting but realistic factors that do play into testifying against someone who has hurt you. So in this case, because his testimony was basically the most solid evidence they had, the case could have been thrown out had Joey not taken the stand. Now, because Joey had already been subpoenaed to show up in court, he would have been held in contempt of court and fines usually start about $1,000 and can lead to jail time. So if you have been subpoenaed to show up to court as a witness, you do have to go or risk being held in contempt of court. And that has been Elvis's Legal Minute. So now I'm about to give you some hot vice tea, so hot that it's been from 1985. So it's almost 40 years old. And then after that, we're gonna get to best songs in the Fave Five. But first, vice tea. All right, so the vice tea this week actually relates to Michael Mann and William Friedkin. So I'd heard about this rumor from the Rewatchables podcast, and I did actually read uh, William Friedkin's book, not all of it, just parts of it. I just wanted to know more about William Peterson. <laughs> So I didn't really read much of it. I was just like, oh, to live and die in L.A.? Okay, give me all the give me all the tea on that. Not much. William Peterson seems like a great guy, great father, great actor all around. Oh, he can do no wrong in my eyes. So, and Freakin didn't really mention this in his book. So 
And I tried Googling this all last night. I couldn't find any paperwork filed or any proof that this has happened. But this is the rumor is that Michael Mann sued William Friedkin once he saw To Live and Die in L.A. So again, Miami Vice premieres in 1984. This episode of Miami Vice starring Jan Pankow, who was John Pankow, who was also in To Live and Die in L.A., was filmed in around September, October 1984. To Live and Die in L.A. was released in November 1985. So I'm assuming it was filming like springtime springtime in Los Angeles. So, and, you know, using William Peterson, who had already starred in Thief, he has an uncredited role. I guess he's, I guess he's credited. He's the bartender. And then he was also later on in Manhunter, which comes out after this. And then with John Pankow, who had just starred in Miami Vice. So to live and die in LA, let me give you like a quick, quick synopsis. Two Secret Service agents are dealing with a counterfeiter in Los Angeles. And I could see the parallels of, you know, one partner, one set of partners in law enforcement versus the other. Live and Die in LA does have a lot of stylistic cinematography of the time. However, it differs a little bit from Miami Vice. It's not as much of a neo-noir. Um, it's not taking place in as fancy of venues and areas and filming locations. Most films that take place in LA and that are actually filmed and take place in LA tend to take place in, you know, nicer parts of town like Beverly Hills, Malibu, or my favorite is Hollywood trying to disguise itself as Venice, which I thought was very funny. You know, you and To Live and Die in LA is mostly taking place in places that aren't as um, well represented in cinema, such as Lancaster, San Pedro, Long Beach. So plays that you don't really get to see on screen as much. So to Live and Die in LA wasn't really showcasing the wealth and excess that Miami Vice and also Scarface, uh, which was actually primarily filmed in Southern California, just FYI, along with other shows that you might think are based in Miami, like Nip Tuck and Dexter. Those are all filmed in Los Angeles, unfortunately. Sorry to break your, burst your bubble. Um, but I could see a lot of like the parallels. So apparently this was the rumor. It was that Michael Mann sued William Friedkin because he was so mad when he saw it. But however, I cannot find any proof of this, but this is the tea. And this does make me wonder. So Manhunter came out in, let me check my notes, in August of 1986. So obviously some time had elapsed. But what is interesting is that Michael Mann, who is well known for reusing actors, examples include Jamie Foxx, um, Izzy Moreno, <laughs> two different characters, you know, Trini DeSanto and Izzy Moreno. He's very well known for reusing actors. So the fact that he never worked with William Peterson again is a little bit interesting. Even Dennis Farina, he was working um, behind the scenes on Thief and then obviously in Miami Vice, then Manhunter and then Crime Story. So it is interesting that he's never worked with William Peterson again, which to me is obviously a great loss because William Peterson should just be everywhere and everything to everyone. So I do think that's interesting. And then I tried to do a little bit of research into John Pankow. Seems to have a very chill life, uh, very much into theater, um, doing a lot of plays before kind of breaking television. However, when I was looking at his IMDb, I was like, okay, mad about you, whatever, never really watched it. He did voices in Duckman? Okay, Duckman was this show that I was obsessed with in grade four. Don't ask why I was watching this stuff in grade four. Uh, unsupervised TV. Greatest thing about being a child. So Duckman was voiced by 
George, Jason Alexander. I keep wanting to call him George Alexander. George Costanza, Jason Alexander from Seinfeld. And he was a private eye and he was a duck, but it was like very filthy. Like, I remember he was making jokes that, you know, this hot woman passed by him and he was lamenting the fact that he didn't have genitals and things that obviously kind of went over my head at the time. But yeah, Duckman, very interesting. That definitely needs a rewatch. That is going to go on my list. If I can find it, I will be very excited. Uh, so Miami Vice was actually one of John Pankow's first roles. And unfortunately, I was expecting to see him guest star on CSI with his old friend, William Peterson. Never did. How rude. William Peterson should have made that happen. And now let's go to music. So it opens, obviously, we, we've got to get out of this place by the animals, which again, always makes me think of the Vietnam War. Then the song that was playing in the Foxy Boxing venue was I Send a Message by NXS. And then the song as they're going down Alligator Alley is Girls With Gun by Tommy Shaw. Tommy Shaw was actually part of Styx. And this song was for some reason my most played song for 2019. I do not know why. It's just a very catchy, upbeat song. I think it's one of those songs when you come home late especially from the bar when I'm working. It's like not 2 a.m. like for the rest of you guys, unless, you know, you're in Chicago or New York or Montreal. It's like 3.34 and you're tired. So a lot of times I'll just play either like heavy metal, very loud, AC on, or I'll play something like super upbeat, just repeated, 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 just to keep me up. And I guess this is one of the songs. And it's funny now because the lead singer of Styx is Gowan, who is a Canadian artist who was around in the 80s. So again, everything can come back around thanks to the magic of CanCon. And now, last but not least, this is my Fay Five. You can always see my Fay Five on the gallery at viceandeasypodcast.com. My Fay Five, honestly, I just wanted all five spots to be Enrique Ruiz, just for everything, just the acting, the expression, the glamour, the looks, the attitude, the unbuttoned silk shirts in a Miami courthouse, just everything. Uh, number two is the Gator Killer, Clem came to the rescue. Everyone kind of dismissed him, you know, being an old man with two teeth. He was the marksman that Crockett needed. If he wasn't there, Crockett wouldn't be alive today. Uh, number three is just outdoor appliances. <laughs> you know you're in the swap then. <laughs> then driving to the Everglades with the fishing rods poking out of the back seat of your Ferrari. Just an excellent look. Just a look in general. That was, I remember I like made this Instagram, like me be trying to be outdoorsy in quotes. And it was just that. I am somewhat outdoorsy, but I think being a Canadian, people expect me to be a lot more outdoorsy. And I'm like, no, I grew up in the city. Like I took the subway as a child. Like it wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the sticks. So, and I only went to summer camp for a couple years, but it was kind of like a fat camp. It was a sports camp, but for us heavier set kids, instead of one week that most kids would go to perfect their sport, we'd be there for a whole month. So you could tell. It was me and one other fat Scottish kid that were there for the whole month. So we could tell why our parents put us there for a month. We were not star athletes, I'll tell you that. And then my last one is whatever the hustler, the woman, and his friend were fighting about. I'd really like to know. I'd like to know why you would be fighting with both a woman and a man on the streets of Miami in broad daylight. What compels you to do that? <laughs> and with that, I conclude our episode where we have recapped season one, episode nine, glades thank you for listening and thank you again for all the kind words and positive feedback i really need that again with the month of april i expect to be a little bit slower so hopefully i'll be able to do some more fun things for you guys so fingers are crossed i really hope i can deliver on these promises so that's why i haven't quite made them yet so 
keep an eye out for any new and improved Vice and Easy stuff. As always, you can follow me on all things social at Vice and Easy Podcast. I actually went somewhat viral on TikTok this week, so we shall see what the next week holds with my TikToks. You can find me on TikTok. You can find me on YouTube. You can find the website at viceandeasypodcast.com, and then you can also find on Instagram. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week, and as always. Hey, man, Miami Wise is number one new show.